What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Movie Crush Friday, Paul edition, back in the hizzy. How you doing, Paul? I'm doing good, man. How about yourself? Well, you know, behind the scenes, you know what just happened. We had some trouble with my recording setup, and when that happens, because I'm a caveman, I want to pick this shit up and throw it into a trash can. Yeah, Chuck Chuck, uh, hulks out a little bit, but we've brought him back to Bruce Banner status, so I think this should be a nice, relaxed... Film discussion about Badlands. Yeah, man. So uh, here's a little bit of short history for this movie is I was supposed to do this movie with, uh, you know, the band, the hold steady. Oh yeah. Craig Finn, the lead singer. Yeah. No way. Yeah. He was supposed to do this like, geez, probably, I mean, it was pretty early on actually. in, uh, I think probably like eight months into the show or something. And I'm not blaming him. Whoever was handling his business, though, really screwed it up. Like he was supposed, to, he was performing at um, the the venue, the city winery, right next to the building. Yeah. And I was like, all he's got to do is come right over to the building. I got the time set aside. I got an engineer coming in. It was on a weekend. It was on a Saturday evening before his performance. And then literally, like, no show. I'm up at the office, and like 30 minutes after he's supposed to be there, I get an email from his handler that was like. So we're over here at City Winery. Uh, are you coming over and bringing equipment or what? And I'm like, dude, <laughs> it's like we had this all set. Like, how did you screw up every part of this? So I got really salty. Um, long way of saying, uh, I've now watched this movie twice for this show. And then another, oh, probably f- five times on my own for pleasure. <laughs> well, first of all, it's nice to know that um, he's a fan of the movie. <laughs> 
Yeah, that was his favorite movie. <laughs> uh, we can I'm only speculate what he thinks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm no Craig Finn, but I will do my best to bring some of that hold steady energy to uh, <laughs> what I think of the film. But um, You're better. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, well, that's awesome to know you've seen it that many times. I've probably seen it uh, at least probably four or five times. Uh, yeah. I came to this movie in college in one of my film history classes, actually. Oh, cool. Uh, when we were studying the 1970s, uh-huh. kind of the American New Wave. Uh, and this was the film our teacher decided to show us as kind of representative of that. And I think at the time, I don't think I really knew Malik at all. I don't yeah. think I'd seen any of his stuff or even had heard of him. Uh, since then, I mean, he's without a doubt one of my favorite filmmakers. And this is one of my favorite films of him, by him. Uh, and so I'm really excited to talk about it. Yeah, man, me too. It's uh, Terrence Malick's first film, written, produced, directed. Uh, he made it when he was in his late 20s, which is crazy to think about. Um, a movie that was fraught with problems with financing. I know he chipped in some of a lot of his own money, um, a lot of problems on the shoot itself. Uh, I think I read that you know there were some injuries during certain scenes. There were people that walked off the crew, and, the, and what I read was the last, literally the last two weeks of filming, it was him and his wife and maybe Jack Fisk and like a couple of other people. And that was kind of it. Yeah. By the end, it was, I think I read the same thing, like four or five people. Yeah. And uh, it was a, a non-union crew. And what I read was that the movie's total budget was roughly $300,000. As you said, some of that was Malik's own money. So yeah. Even for 1970s standards, that's a that's very much a low budget independent film. Yeah, and um, yeah, about by the time they got to the end, I saw a thing where they were filming unblimped, which means um, I'm sure you know this, but basically with film cameras, they generate noise when you're shooting, and so you have to basically put this blimp around the camera to sort of quiet dampen the sound. Yeah. And because they just didn't have time and were on the run to just grab those last shots, they shot a lot of it unblimped, meaning all of the sound they got was unusable. So they had to record, I think, something like 70% of the dialogue had to be re-recorded in post for AD- oh, wow. uh, with ADR. Yeah, For the whole so film? Just, that's what I read. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Um, and you, I feel like you can kind of tell, like I was watching the Blu-ray and like sometimes it's like kind of easy to tell when stuff has clearly been ADR'd, you know? Yeah. And um, I mean, still... Y- even if you notice it, it's not something that sticks out as taking you out of the film by any means. Yeah. And I mentioned Jack Fisk. He was the um, production designer and uh, I'm sure he had a very small crew and did a lot of it himself, but you know, he very famously met Sissy Spacek on this film, uh, a young, just sort of perfect and beautiful young Sissy Spacek when she was in her early twenties playing, I think like a 15 year old, yeah, And uh, she and Jack Fisk fell in love and got married. And they're one of the great enduring um, Hollywood couples, if you even want to call them that. They're really not a Hollywood couple, but movie couples. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he's become one of my favorite um, production and set designers, too. Works a lot, has worked a lot with Malik over the years and just uh, does a great job. And this movie, um, made in 73, but it really looks like it was made in the 1950s. It's so authentic looking. Yeah, and and it, it's funny you mentioned Jack Fisk being one of your favorites because it's like how many set deck art directors do people know by name in the movies? Like, I know, but Jack not Fisk many. Is one of the few. Jack Fisk is one of the few. Um, he's he works with David Lynch a lot, among yeah. other great directors. But um, yeah, I agree with you. And it's interesting though to think about because 
the movie takes place in the 50s. And at the time they were shooting, that was only 15 years prior. Yeah. So that's like us, me making a movie about 2005 right now. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy to think about, but what it wasn't that What did 2005 even removed. look like? I have no idea. I don't know, man. Baggier, baggier cargo shorts. Cargo Maybe. Shorts. I, I still have those cargo shorts. Um, <laughs> but uh, but you're right about the the look of it. And it's interesting because Malik, you know, Malik is famous for not doing interviews or press or anything, but he actually did do a handful of interviews when this movie came out for a few magazines. And there's some, they're really fascinating to read because he's very open about the process of shooting the film and his intentions with it. Oh, really? And he even talks about um, how when it came to like the period piece aspect of it, he didn't want to overwhelm that. He just wanted to be sort of subtle because he said nostalgia can kind of overwhelm a picture. Yeah. And it's interesting. You mentioned how you still feel like it's the 1950s because it's not, it doesn't hit you over the head with it, but it's just there. It just, it just feels so natural. Yeah. It's not like uh, a, a movie I love, but back to the future, Mm-hmm. You know, which is they just they smash you over the head with the nostalgia bat like over and over and over as soon as they get to the 1950s, which was kind of the point of that movie. But this movie just feels very lived in, very real. Uh, I think they shot it mostly in Colorado, but um, it certainly has the look of, you know, the flatlands of the Dakotas and, and Nebraska and the Great Plains. And, you know, Colorado's. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's one of those states that's. Very varied. Uh, you you think Colorado is just nothing but mountains and the Rockies, but there are all these big, huge, wide open plains areas of Colorado too. Yeah, well, I'm. Uh, I think you know this. I'm originally from Western Kansas, small town in Western Kansas. Oh, that's right. You know, I think and, too about um, this. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you're right. The first time I haven't been to Colorado that much, despite me being from a state next to it. But the first time I went to Colorado, I was so surprised when we crossed from Kansas into Colorado how it was still flat (laughs) it Uh still looked exactly like kansas for quite a while yeah and then eventually you can start to see the rocky mountains in the distance but um yeah one of the things i love about this movie is it feels so much like the town i grew up in oh really like that small town vibe wide wide neighborhood streets um main street where everyone parks doesn't parallel park but they park um kind of at an angle you know yeah that diagonal space yeah yeah and just those vistas that you can just look out for miles It, it really feels like kind of where I grew up, which is another reason I kind of have a soft spot for this film. Yeah. And, you know, Malik would go on to be known for exactly what this movie embodies uh, aesthetically. Um, I mean, it's all there from the beginning. Those uh, the only thing that's really different is the running time. He made a very short movie. He went on to make much longer films, but (laughs) the the obviously all the magic hour stuff, all the shots of nature, the close ups of nature the uh, dappled sunlight and shadow. And it's just interesting to see like right from the beginning, he sort of had a very clear idea of what he wanted to do aesthetically with his camera and with his lens. And I think what makes Badlands interesting to talk about is because unlike his subsequent films, you know, when you talk about a lot of Malick's subsequent work, it's easy to throw around sort of these vague words like transcendent, uh, you know, beautiful, uh, all these words that are kind of hard to define poetic. Yeah. Lyrical. Yeah. And those are all true, but they're also these kind of words that you're like, I get it, but they don't, they don't do much for like talking about a movie. Whereas Badlands, it's a little easier to sort of, uh, to talk about it in more grounded terms because unlike a lot of his other films, 
this is a, a very grounded story in the sense that it has a very clear narrative progression from mm-hmm. A to B. We know where the story's going. And I think it's just very accessible in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know how big of a fan you are of Days of Heaven, but that's always been big my fan. favorite Terrence Malick movie. And uh, I did find it very interesting with those first two films. They both very much had a narrative plot, you know, that you could follow um, point A to B to C. And then he went uh, away for many, 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 many years. <laughs> Yep. And and then started making different kinds of movies, and th- they still had that Malick look. And I st- and I love Thin Red Line, and you know, it's been a bit of a mixed bag since then, I think. But uh, this and Days of Heaven are both just, uh, I think Malick kind of at his best. You know, my favorite Malick film is actually The New World, uh, the the, yes. the John Smith Pocahontas one from two thousand five. Love that movie. And I think the reason that's my favorite is because I think it's it's the best blend of his sort of uh, still kind of in telling more narrative stories from his older films mm-hmm. while still having that very roving camera, that lyrical poetic quality. And I think that John Smith Pocahontas story really lends itself to the merging of those two styles. Yeah, I um, forgot about that movie. I love that movie. Yeah, yeah, but but Badlands might is definitely my top three for sure. Yeah, and um, it's just like the fact that this was the first film, like to have your first film be this good at what age twenty set twenty nine. You know, like I mean, I I I made a film as you know a feature film last year, and Uh like either you know I'm proud of it or whatever, but it's not Badlands. That's for sure. Let yourself up. (laughs) Yeah, but it's 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 like did a human really make this? (laughs) You know. Yeah, it's astounding, especially for someone in their 20s to make something this sort of uh, mature and focused and assured. Uh, You get the feeling that just out of the gate, he knew exactly what he wanted. Um, I think Martin Sheen still says that it's his best movie or or maybe his favorite movie that he's been in. And he's so good. And and seeing this again uh, through this lens was, it really hit me how much they are their children. Uh, not only is she supposed to be 15, he's supposed to be 25, but the way they act is at the same time, very childlike, but also they're immediately this old couple somehow <laughs> in the way they interact with each other. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. that I noticed that too, the, the, the old couple vibe where there's certain scenes where um, maybe it's when they're hiding out in the woods and she's just walking around with like curlers in her hair. Uh-huh. And she, you know, he, he like, wa- she walks up to him and she takes the cigarette out of his mouth so she can smoke it. Yeah. And it has this feeling of like the way a couple who's been married for 20 years would act around each other. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and yet you also get the sense that they're kind of, they're doing it maybe because that's what they, f- like they're play acting a little bit like an old couple yeah. would. Yeah, a hundred percent. But they're also like very childlike, especially him. Um, like setting up code words and and the scene where that really got me was where, where they go to the rich guy's house and kind of hole up there for the afternoon. And he just, he rings the little servant's bell and he goes, next time you hear that, that means it's time for us to get up out of here. Instead of just saying, hey, we got to go. He sets up a little, you know, something like a child would do. Like I ring the bell when it's time to go. Yeah, it's, he he is without a doubt one of the most like fascinating characters i've ever seen in a movie yeah uh and and martin sheen is just perfectly cast as him 
as as Kit Carruthers. Um, and I, I want to talk a little bit about um, the real life story that uh, real life uh, case that inspired this movie. Are you familiar much with it? A little bit. Uh, the Charles Starkweather. Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate. Yeah. Um, 1958 murder spree that started in Lincoln, Nebraska and ended in uh, Wyoming. And um, he was 19 and she was 14. And they killed, I think, 10 people all in all over a few weeks, about a month, maybe. That's roughly the body count in this somewhere. In yeah. There. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, Starkweather, when they were caught, Starkweather was sentenced to death by electric chair and he was executed. And Carol Ann Fugate actually received life imprisonment, but she was paroled in 1976. Uh and this is an interesting fact, but to this day, she's the youngest female in U.S. history to have been tried for first-degree murder at, I think, 14 or maybe 15 by the time she was tried. Oh, interesting. So so this is clearly the inspiration for Badlands, and yet Malik takes a lot of these details, but he, he doesn't, you know, the movie doesn't say based on a true story. Yeah, it's not a biopic he's not interested. Yeah, he's not interested in, in telling that exact story, but uh, Starkweather in fact did sort of model himself after james dean uh-huh. and some of the lines in the movie that um kit says were things starkweather said like um i always wanted to be a criminal just not this big a one that was an actual yeah, starkweather quote such a great line <laughs> such a great line um and i just think that case like it's such a fascinating case because it, it sort of gripped the nation as it was happening it was almost like a modern day Bonnie and Clyde at the time in the 1950s and the 1950s you think of as being this sort of innocent time, mm-hmm. um, sort of like the way back to the future depicts it, you know, Yeah. when everyone's drinking milkshakes and, uh, right. you know, going dancing at the hop or whatever, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> this kind of shook the nation, you know? And, yeah. Um, and they portray that in the movie, you know, that one kind of great, um, sequence where it talks, it shows the guards walking the kids from school and, She's in the narration, you know, we, I guess we might as well talk about that a little bit, that great narration through the whole movie from her, which, uh, Quentin Tarantino, uh, blatantly ripped off, uh, along with the score for true romance. Um, this movie was very much a model for true romance, a movie I love. And he, he, it's not like he ripped it off. He very much just said like, yeah, I stole it. I stole it from Badlands. It's one of my favorite movies. (laughs) Uh, so that's fine. You know, he borrowed it. Uh, but it's really good, a good lesson in narration. Like if you're going to go in, go all in. Yeah. Um, the narration is different than what we'd think of in usual narration because it doesn't, it doesn't give you exposition for the most part. It kind of tells you things that are not really related to the story, which I think is what good narration does. It, it, yeah. Malik is not using it as a crutch to sort of fill in storytelling gaps necessarily. It's her, it's and, her mental thoughts really more than anything. Yeah, and it's sort of like um, maybe this is her diary or her journal or something. But but the things she talks about are so fascinating. And this is re- relayed in some of the interviews Malik gave back in the 70s about the movie. Um, he didn't want you to think Holly is like dumb or simple. Yeah. It's that she's, she's, she's a typical Southern girl sort of. And uh-huh. she has this like weird sense of propriety where it's like, I'm not going to talk about myself, you know. Um, and so she relates this story as if she's like giving a school report on how you how she spent her summer vacation almost. Yeah. So it's like, here's what we ate and here are some of the flowers we saw. And just those very childlike things. 
Yeah. And I mean, and there's some of my favorite lines too. Uh, I jotted a few of them down or through her narration. Uh, and this sort of shows a little bit of the cracks early on in their relationship when she goes, uh, kid accuses me of only being along for the ride. And sometimes I wish he would fall into the river and drown so I could watch. <laughs> but she just says it so childlike and matter of factly. It's just uh, the impact it has is just phenomenal. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. So this is something I wanted to ask you about 
and, and I, I sort of noticed it more watching watching the movie this time is to what degree do you think we're supposed to take Holly as an accomplice or somebody who's complicit or culpable for these these crimes? Do you think Malik wants us to see her as just, you know, one half of the team or is it something else? Is she uh, more of a vi- more of a, a victim than uh, a perpetrator? What do you think? Well, I definitely don't think that he wants her to be seen as an accomplice because she never really takes part in anything actually physically. Um, but I think it's interesting in, in that he also doesn't play her as um, captive in, until sort of near the end. There's this one part, where is it here? I have it written down where there's sort of a switch that happens and uh, it seems like she's a little more captive, but they don't they don't play that up like, uh, you know, like she doesn't ask to leave or anything. And he says, you can't like it's all I mean, you see all the dialogue in this movie between them is just so mundane. They'll, he, he will kill somebody and then talk about, you know, uh, you know, a, a something sitting on the table that looks weird to him. You know, I mean, he's he's not smart. It's like you're talking about her not being smart. He's kind of a real dumb shit. And I've known guys like this that like he thinks he's smart, but he's not a true narcissist. Like when he's recording all of his thoughts and advice into the dictaphone, he really thinks he has something important to say, but he doesn't. A hundred percent. And I think it's so it's so ironic that at the beginning of the film, when he first meets Holly, when he walks up to her, when she's twirling her baton in the yard, he says something like, oh, I just got some things I want to say. Yeah. Most people don't have anything to say at all. And then throughout the film, everything he does end up saying are, like you said, not smart things. These sort of like received, you know, platitudes and ideas that clearly he doesn't have that he probably just heard someone say and thinks they sound smart. Yeah. And he's and he also belittles her at times for being dumb. Um, like when when they're parked under the train track and, you know, he clearly has no plan. He didn't know what the fuck he's doing. And he, he spins the bottle, but the bottle get points in a direction that he clearly doesn't want to go. And he's like, well, I'll just go pick a direction. If I can't do that, then what kind of a man am I? And she says, I don't know. Or And he, and he says something like, uh, what, or he's like, do you understand that? And she's like, well, I don't know. And he goes, oh, well, what do I expect from you anyway? Or, you know, the, like the guy that feels like in order to make himself feel smart, he has to put down the woman he's with. Yeah. And you never get the sense that Kit really loves her or cares about her it feels much more like he just feels like i'm a guy that should have his girl by his side Mm -hmm. and so here i picked a girl and i've got her now yeah again so much of i think how he models himself is again that james dean idea of like i'm a rebel without a cause even though i don't know what any of these things mean but i've received them perhaps from tv or movies and this is how i should act as the self-made outlaw yeah and the things that are important to him um like in the, in the end, in that final uh, chase sequence, you know, he's he's looking in the mirror and checking his hair. He, uh, after he gets caught, or he doesn't, you know, get caught, he, he gives himself up, shoots out the tire. And the first thing he thinks about after he checks his pulse, which I thought was great, was <laughs> um, stacking up those rocks as like a monument to where like the great outlaw was finally captured. Yeah. And, and, you know, along the way, there's a scene where they they bury some of their their tokens in like basically like a time capsule. And he's yeah. like, what do people think if they dig this up in a thousand years? Yeah, <laughs> he 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 very much 
treasures the idea of like being remembered or he thinks his life is of some great importance of like to 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 society like people should be interested in who he is and i mean the ironic thing is that they are like when he gets captured oh man when when he's in chains in the airport hangar yeah so great literally on a stage yeah he's on a stage he's holding court He's he's handcuffed, but I mean, they're asking him like, you know, who's your favorite singer? And he's like, he throws them his the things he has in his pocket. So he throws yeah. a guy his lighter, his comb, and they just eat it up. You know, he's kind of like a modern day or a, for that time, like the prototypical like reality TV star or something. Yeah, and man, that whole last bit was so fascinating. Uh, you know, you see it turn when he's in the car getting taken away, and the uh, the the deputy in the back says that he looks like James Dean and man, he, you can just see him light up when he hears that. And, That's like the nicest thing yeah. <laughs> anyone ever could ever say about him in his mind. Yeah. And then when he's on that plane wing, he's literally standing on a stage and just holding court and they're laughing at him. And it, it was interesting how he played or how Malik chose to have the deputies play that as them being so interested in him. And, you know, he shakes their hand at the end and sorry if I cause you any trouble. And he's the just deputy like, says, good luck to you. I mean it. <laughs> yeah, man. It's really, really fascinating as they're getting walked off with exactly how he would want with a literal army, like escorting him out like that. This is what in his mind is like, yeah, this is what they needed. They needed an army to 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 take care of me. And he says, you know, I could have I could have hold out. Uh, a whole army if I had just got behind the mountains and my ammo didn't, didn't yeah. run out, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I love those two, those two policemen who, who actually capture him when they're in the car. Cause you can see them, they give these looks where they're sort of, I think they even say like, Hey, we did it. We caught him. Like they, they know that they're sort of going to be etched in history as the guys who caught him too. Yeah, totally. And they're, they're very much, uh, happy about that fact, you know? Yeah. And I think um, it just speaks to how, um, fascinated we are with with both celebrity and um killers you know like think about how people fascinated people are with charles manson or all these other famous you know ted bundy these famous killers it's just this morbid fascination that i think is a very a very american thing (laughs) more so than in other places yeah probably so um and you know natural born killers i think played off of this movie uh, like the cup cal- the movie California with the K, like the couple on this murder spree. Um, and I know Springsteen fans will be really mad if we don't mention the song Nebraska yep. was also based on the, the Starkweather case. Also uh, a line in uh, We Didn't Start the Fire. Oh, really? Billy Joel. He says, uh, I wrote it down here, Starkweather homicide, children of the little mind. Right, so he, Starkweather he gives homicide. A, yeah, he gives a little name drop to Starkweather. Two words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I thought I really loved the scene where they had uh, where she loses her virginity and, you know, because they don't show any of that. It literally just shows her kind of buttoning up and he gets up and she's just sort of like, you know, is that it? Is you know, what I, what's everyone always saying? What, what the big deal is about that? And like you can tell it kind of wounds him a little bit because, you know, he's the man. And, and but he plays it off like, well, yeah, it's no big deal at all. And then in like, I don't know how you write dialogue like this, but he said, we should take this rock and smash both of our hands. So we'll always remember this day. <laughs> like who, what 29 year old thinks of a, to write dialogue like that. It's just amazing. Yeah. And, and it's, it's also, you know, you can kind of, it sort of teases out Holly's 
psychology without putting a fine point on it because again she's supposed to be 15 she is a child in in many respects and you know when he says we should smash this rock and she's like won't that hurt and he's like that's the point stupid yeah and it's just you know malik doesn't overdo it but there is this kind of um in a very notable imbalance of power that's there on the edges of the film yeah that um probably if you made a film like this today you would see that pushed much more to the forefront but in this film it's very very subtle just kind of there in the background yeah absolutely uh and that scene kind of buttons up with a there's so many tiny little moments that just make his character so much more interesting where he goes well you know i'm gonna keep this rock anyway and he walks like three feet with this big ass rock then throws it down and is like well let me get a smaller one (laughs) yeah just to just to yeah to follow up on sort of Kit's character, he has all these little idiosyncrasies, um, like uh, like when they're walking in town and he gets mad at somebody for littering, and he's like, "If everyone did that, a whole town would be a mess," or something like that. Yeah, and uh, and he's killing people. Is, <laughs> yeah, and this is so interesting, and it's one of another thing I want to touch on that Malik did talk about again in these aforementioned interviews. I keep going back to, but he saw Kit as very conservative. Uh, and he thinks most of the people he kills are kind of worthless. Uh-huh. And he has these very sort of traditional American values, like don't litter. Uh, when they decide to go on the run, he has Holly bring her homework so she won't won't fall behind in her studies, you know? Yeah. Uh, and the one person, it's interesting to note that the one person he doesn't kill is the rich man. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the one person who he very clearly, it seemed like he was going to kill. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's interesting because it's like the one guy, you know, I think there's a sense of Kit maybe like has some like sympathy for this guy or he sees himself as like, this is what I could be, this rich man living in this fancy home. Yeah. And it's like the one guy who doesn't need our sympathies is the guy Kit sympathizes with the most. Yeah. He has an interesting code. I will say that because, you know, she even talks early on when they invade the camp. Um, which by the way, the production design on, on their wooded camp was just so cool. Like every little kid's dream to like, you know, set traps and like live in the trees. But, um, he, she even says in the narration, she was like, well, Kit said that they, they deserved it because they weren't lawmen. They were just out for the uh, bounty reward. So like he has a code in that way, shooting these men in the back, but, and shooting his friend, uh, Cato, but then he, he doesn't kill the couple. He locks them in the thing he fires off two shots into the <laughs> yeah i think we the, got him <laughs> so yeah so we don't know i mean maybe he does but yeah he it's hard to know if you know he actually did kill them but yeah know. but he doesn't like outright kill them and then the right. rich guy and and his uh housekeeper yeah uh, he doesn't kill them either so there is a weird code uh but like i said i think he's a dumb shit i don't even think he knows what his code is for sure if that makes sense i think yeah, no, I think, again, it's like these received ideas of what a man should act like, Yeah, you know? And um, there is there is one quote, you know, I love to bring quotes in, um, yeah. a quote from one of these Malik interviews, and I want to hear what you think of it, about this, because I think it, um, it even speaks to sort of our current time, political climate, per uh-huh. se. But, uh, you again, mean how about, awesome everything is? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but he's talking about the conservatism of Kit, and Malik said... Quote, it's not infrequently the people at the bottom 
who most vigorously defend the very rules that put and keep them there. Oh, wow. And speaking about Kit. Yeah, geez. The more things change, huh? <laughs> Here's another mm-hmm. Mallet quote, actually, and this really drives home um, a point about who this character is. And you probably read this one, but he, at a news conference, he said that Kit is so desensitized that he can regard the gun with which he shoots people as a kind of magic wand that eliminates a small nuisance. And that's kind of the the thing through the whole movie. He's wantonly killing, but it's, uh, you know, th- he kills her fa- Warren Oates, the great Warren Oates yeah. uh, as her father. Who's, who's going to go call the cops on him. He's like, uh, this gun, you know, will stop you from doing that. His friend Cato, that's clearly kind of running to go turn them in. He's like, this gun will stop him from doing that. This gun will stop these people from trying to rat us out in the woods. Like, I don't even think he sees it as murder. Yeah. And I think this is one of the strongest parts of the movie is the way the violence is depicted, or should I say not depicted? Yeah. Because you'd think a movie about a spree killer who kills probably almost 10 people by the end of the movie, you would think that would be a very violent film to watch. Yeah. And this film is not violent at all. And and when there is violence, it always happens very quickly. Mm-hmm. And like there's barely any blood. You yeah. might see a little blood on a shirt and it's just over and done with very quickly and it doesn't linger on it. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's it's very much sort of a... Uh, maybe a commentary on the the aestheticization of violence and the way, uh-huh. uh, w- w- you know, we tend to want to see violence in this morbid way. Um, but also, I love how, watching it this time, what I noticed was how there are so many times where, like, they'll kill somebody and then they'll, Kit and Holly will just kind of hang around and, yeah. like, just just hang out and look kind of very blah. Especially after he kills her father, they just sit in the house for, like, the whole night before figuring out what to do. And they just kind of both stare out at the, at the window or something just like you'd you'd think if you did that, you might want to like immediately have a plan and run away, but they just kind of hang out and just, just uh, relax almost. Yeah. And she never, you know, it's so underplayed. Like she never gets hysterical. Uh, Holly just is sort of nonplussed about it all. You know, when, when he shoots Cato, she goes in the room with him where he's ostensibly just sitting there dying very slowly. And she just goes in and just starts having a conversation with him and asking him a question. Um, Very childlike again. Like neither one of them, I don't think understands the gravity of what they're actually doing, but she slowly does. And I think that's that turn it takes toward like the three quarter mark where she feels sort of captive, but she doesn't know. Even when they're when they're in the back seat and he's kissing her when she has the rollers in her hair, like it feels like he's sort of forcing himself on her, but it, it's not. You know, she's not pushing him off and saying no, no, no. It's not like that, but you you can tell that she's not there anymore with him. Yeah, exactly. And and shortly after that, I think is the scene where they're dancing to Nat King Cole. Yeah. Oh man. Which is a, in the headlights of the car, which is a great scene. But yeah, if you if you pay attention, it's really like it's really just uh, Kit is the one who's feeling these emotions. Holly's just there going along with it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. you know the line? Uh, I, I couldn't quite tell what he said, so I had to turn on the subtitle, but it's another great line of dialogue. Uh, he's listening to Nat King Cole and says, if I could sing a song like that, a song about the way I feel right now, it'd be a hit. <laughs> Such a great line. And the narcissism and, and, again, you know? And the fact that if you look at the lyrics to that song, um, A Blossom Fell, 
it's it's all about like love coming to an end yeah it's like the dream is ended true love dies and stuff like that which i think is maybe sort of lost on kit <laughs> yeah i think so but, but it's very appropriate for the movie because i think shortly after that is when they get to that um that area in the plains where the the helicopter starts chasing after them mm-hmm. and that's where holly finally says no i'm not going to go with you and she finally makes that decision to break off from him yeah and and does it again in such an understated childlike way she she kind of just sits on the ground and she's like i don't want to go and you know he gets more frustrated and and asks why what's going on and she's like i don't know i just don't want to go and and like that's her big stand uh the way that she handled handles it is just so childlike and um and he knows you know he tells her that you know you know, we're going to meet up on at this dam on New Year's Eve and whatever. Grand Coulee Dam, yeah, yeah. Like 10 years from now at noon. It's like, where do you come up with this shit, man? But can you imagine the relief that she felt when he left? Oh, yeah. I mean, when you, when you mentioned the sort of childlike aspect, of, I mean, I know you have a young daughter. I'm sure there have been situations where she's like, I don't want to do this. Uh-huh. And she, you ask why, and she's like, I just don't want to. You know? Yeah, it was very much like that scene. Uh, right before that scene, too, is one of my favorite parts of narration that, again, it just shows what a master writer Malik was from the very beginning, where she goes, uh, she's talking about what, you know, again, like what he's doing, what she's doing, what he's doing, what she's doing. And she goes, I spelled out entire sentences on the roof of my mouth with my tongue where nobody could read them. Just like, how do you write that shit? So brilliant. And also, like, in relation to what's happening in the movie, you know, the idea that that's what her fictional audience would be interested in hearing about. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's such a misplaced <laughs> sense of misjudging who her audience is, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, that whole last sequence uh, when they're driving through the Badlands um, and the Great Plains, just hauling ass in that sweet Cadillac, yeah. off, off-roading it, basically. Uh, it was just such a cool decision to not put it on the highway somehow, you know? Yeah, and and once the cops start chasing him in the car, we get an actual chase scene that's like, again, you don't really think of Malik as the guy who's going to film chase action sequences, but it's it's really gripping. It's a really gripping chase sequence, um, even though they're you know they they obviously filmed it with not much money, but it, it works it's really awesome. well when he speeds through the field and the cows are running out of the way and yeah, on a dirt man. road where the the dust is kicking up behind him and you can't you know the cops probably can't even see ahead of him because of that. It's it's really, really well shot. It is, and it feels genuinely dangerous. These cars kind of fishtailing in the dirt, hauling ass right next to each other. These big-ass old cars that don't handle that well, you know. These aren't like stunt cars. I guarantee you they were just a, an old stock caddy that he bought to destroy, basically. <laughs> uh, it does feel very dangerous. Yeah, and, and I noticed watching it this time where the cops are chasing him, and they're on a dirt road, and Kit makes a sharp left turn, and the cops follow and do the same, and the the cop car tips. Yeah, it doesn't tip upside down, but it tips like straight up. It goes sideways for a second. <laughs> slowly comes back down, and I'm like, they didn't that? Mean that. There's there's no way they meant that, and it's like, no. were there other takes where it flipped completely? Like, I I, I can't imagine how <laughs> if they just got really lucky with yeah. how far the car tipped, you know? Well, and I think that's the ones who ended up getting him, right? I mean, yeah, it is. It doesn't really show that it doesn't draw that line, but it you get the feeling that that car drove away from that that brief sideways tip. <laughs> yeah, because 
it seems that's when Kit, it seems like he's going to get away from them. And yeah. then that's when he decides to stop and, and shoot out his tire. Because I think he needs, again, like we talked about earlier, he needs that sort of movie script ending to his tale where the cops apprehend him in a high-speed chase. Yeah, and it's a really interesting uh, decision to shoot out the tire rather than just give up. Um, and she even says so in the narration, you know, uh, that that she thought it was, or she was on to him, basically, and suspected that he shot out his own tire instead of the tire actually just blowing out naturally. Yeah, because it's almost like he feels he needs, he can't be seen as having given up right. of his own volition. So it's like, there had to be something that stopped him, you know? Yeah, absolutely. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, been the juicy. podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. 
Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk a little bit about that Cato sequence because, you know, I mean, we talked a little bit about it, but they've, um, they go to his friend's house that I guess he just knows somehow. And he goes to turn him in. They shoot him. He dies very slowly. And that's, I feel like, when a couple of interesting things happen. That's the first time that you see him emote and, like, act upset like after he locks that couple in the in the cellar or whatever. And then you see him, like, kicking rocks and, like, really um, can't get a hold of himself beside that big truck. And that's the only time you see him sort of not – at least pretending to be in control of himself. And that I think is where it kind of turns to where I feel like she's feeling like a hostage for the first time. And I think onto him a little bit, like he doesn't even know what he's doing. And I think that's when the voiceover says he's the most trigger happy person I'd ever met, yeah. which is a, a very interesting way to describe him murdering <laughs> yeah. a couple people. But, uh, but yeah, that scene where he's walking, uh, walking by himself and sort of kicking rocks and uh-huh. cursing. It's interesting because we don't hear what he says. Yeah. Like, I think there's either music or maybe voiceover on top of it. And so, again, we, we're never really allowed an entryway into Kit's psychology. Even we see, we, you know, we see that emotion, but we don't really know what he's thinking. Yeah. And I think maybe... The, uh, that's one of the brilliant things about this movie is that Malik never, um, he never attempts to psychologize Kit and never s- explain his actions. Mm-hmm. Um, he never says, oh, Kit, you know, grew up in a broken home and this is why he is the way he is. Or he, he had an abusive father. Is this, this is why he is the way he is. It's yeah, never, you know nothing about him. You know nothing about him. Yeah. Except you know, that think, little bit at the beginning when it shows him just kind of working these dead end jobs. Exactly. Yeah. And and the fact that early on we see Cato as like maybe his one friend yeah. from the garbage, the days on the garbage route, you know, and the fact that he has no problem killing Cato, you know. Oh, was that Cato at the beginning? Yeah. When oh, he's, okay. when they're hauling garbage in, uh, yeah, at the very beginning. Uh, the other cool thing that happens in that sequence too, which is very instructive, I think of her, is when the couple shows up and he's walking him out to the field to put him in the cellar. And she and the girl are talking and it's just girl talk. She's like a kid. She has this connection that she hasn't had in weeks. And she's asking him if she loves her boyfriend, Uh, which, man, I mean, just what a great way to play and write that scene. You know, it's so banal. Like, again, like you said, girl talk, just uh, do you love him? Well, I got to stick by Kit. I think he feels trapped, (laughs) you know. As they're clearly walking out to a, a field where there's a very good chance they might die. <laughs> yeah. And she even asked, she's like, you know, what's he going to do? And she's just like, I don't know. You, you know, you'd have to ask him basically. Yeah. It's, it's very, it's, it's incredibly chilling in a, in a very detached way, uh, how these scenes play out. Yeah. And, and also for a movie that sort of plays out like a fairy tale in a lot of ways, um, it's somehow not grounded in reality the way they play all this stuff uh, and not reacting to, you know, there's never, like I said earlier, there's never one moment, even when her dad dies, where she gets upset about stuff. Um, and that that point is interesting, too, because Malik talked about how um, it's not that maybe she never felt emotion about her dad's death. 
it's maybe D- she did cry buckets, but she would never think of telling you that. Like right. that wouldn't be proper to, to share with the audience because it would, you know, she's again, doesn't want to put too much attention on herself and she just wants to come off in this, the best possible light, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, there's a brief moment when he's dying where she runs to his side. Uh, but even that is pretty underplayed. And she says, are you going to be okay? Yeah. And he's like basically dead. Yeah. And, and Kit's great line is like, he, he doesn't need a doctor. <laughs> you know, he's, he's gone. And the way that murder is played out is so just low key and, uh, and real, you know, my favorite moment of that sequence is when, uh, Kit moves the body into the, I don't think it's like the basement. Yeah. He drags into the basement and then he comes back upstairs and he's like, I found a toaster. Uh-huh. And he's just holding a toaster. <laughs> I found the toaster. It's like, why? Like, what is he? What are your values, man? Like, why do you take these things? Yeah. I mean, he's a dumb shit. The things that he chooses to do, like he's burns a house down in that one great uh, kind of the only handheld sequence in the movie. So it has a lot of impact when he's dumping the gas everywhere. And Malik shoots fire so well. It's just so like with that score, uh, so haunting. And he takes he he puts on the record. Uh, of him on a loop of what he's you know trying to throw the cops off the scent and uh takes a lamp yeah. and then at the rich man's house he takes that trophy cup and and you know the hat and the jacket and a couple of other dumb things like the things he finds and wants to collect is just weird and it's kind of ironic because especially when he's at on his garbage route he talks about like he's kind of disgusted by all the junk people have or throw away yeah and yet he has no problem collecting the same <laughs> kind of junk for himself yeah he said that about Cato when he when he was in his room he went, look at all this junk yeah exactly and that i think again points to that sort of disgust he has with the lower class almost like yeah. he, especially at the beginning how he's so ash- sort of ashamed of being a garbage collector mm-hmm. and he's like listen i don't like this stuff okay but uh, I'm just doing it. And he, he feels like he, he clearly feels like he's m- way above being a garbage collector. Yeah. And, and, uh, sort of takes that attitude into his first meeting with her father, uh, when he goes out and that great, great shot, which is so cool where her dad is hand painting these billboard signs on the highway. Uh, and again, with Jack Fisk as a production designer, such a small detail that his, his work truck had all that paint splatter all over it. Um, just little things like that make it so rich, but I love that scene where he basically goes out there to sort of tell his fa- her father, like, Hey, I love your daughter and I'll do right by her. But the way he does it is, is not correct. <laughs> no, I mean, he, he clearly thinks he's above the dad. Yeah. You know, he plays it, you know, the way you shouldn't play it was just sort of like, I'm kind of amused by the fact that I have to come out here and do this like song and dance, but I'll just do it just to humor you. you right. Know? Yeah. I love that scene. And Warren, you know, the legendary Warren Oates in such a small part, uh, but still very effective. Yeah. He he has only, I think, a handful of lines in the whole movie, but they're not wasted. And he's just, he's so uh, kind of menacing both as a person, but also probably as a father, he's clearly a, uh, probably a strict father to say the least, you know, and Warren Oates plays it very well. Yeah. I mean, there's not a ton of dialogue in the whole movie because everything is so underplayed. Like if this movie got remade and it, it sort of has been through, uh, wild at heart in California and, uh, uh, natural born killers, like I was saying, but, uh, nobody would take this kind of approach. 
there would be so much more emotion. And when the father dies, she would just be like screaming and upset. And like, everything is just so between this, like here and here in this movie. Uh, and it's such an, it, like not brave, but like just a very confident thing for a 20 something filmmaker to do right out of the gate. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's, it's a very strange movie. Like I would very, very much call it strange. And, uh, it's it's even more of a kind of a miracle when you think about like we talked about the troubled production of the film that the fact that the end product feels so seamless yeah. like they had three different directors of photography over the course of the <laughs> no. movie and it never you never notice that it feels always feels like one clear coherent vision yeah yeah totally and malik has that great cameo at yes. the rich guy's house that uh i'm sure you know the story there he the actor didn't show. And so he just filled in planning to reshoot it later. Uh, and, and Martin Sheen was like, no man, I'm not reshooting that. You were great. You got to leave it. <laughs> and he, he is really good. I mean, it's just a small role, but no, it was cool. Uh, Malik has that kind of like very soft spoken Texas drawl. And uh, it's, it's weird because again, we know how Malik is, you know, since then he doesn't do interviews or press or anything. And so just to see him like, in his own movie with dialogue yeah. it's just kind of this weird whiplash feeling like oh like yeah. i'm sure a lot of people watch it and don't even know that that's malik yeah or or if they don't aren't just a sort of a student of him might think oh yeah the director giving himself a cameo like m night Shyamalan, and like that is not malik's deal at all like he didn't he didn't want to he wanted to reshoot it it is uh he did it as a 100% last resort i'm sure if there was anyone else on that set he could have stuffed in that suit like he would have done so, but it ended up working. It's kind of fun, fun to see him. And I love that Martin Sheen was adamant that he's like, I'm not going to reshoot that scene, <laughs> Terry. You have to, we're keeping it. <laughs> and little, uh, little Emilio and Charlie Sheen are in it too. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't I, until, um, yeah, I was just scrolling on the Wikipedia last night. And I was like, oh, they're the two little boys on the street that Holly kind of looks out of her window at. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Their first appearance on film, I think. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're talking about Hollywood couples. Um, I didn't know this, but Martin Sheen and his wife, they were married, obviously, with kids at the time of this movie. But they are another couple that have been together uh, that this whole time, 40-some um, years, and yeah. still going strong. So that's cool. No, there, there's a handful of them. Jeff Bridges and his wife. Like, there's, uh, I know Hollywood has that reputation, but the ones that endure, like um, Kevin Bacon and Kyra Sedgwick, I just, I think it's cool. But I also think... I think that's cool when any couple stays together forever. <laughs> like you don't have yeah. to be from Hollywood. I think it might be a little more challenging just due to the scheduling and not being around each other and all that. But uh, mating for life is admirable, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. Coupling up. <laughs> uh, do you got anything else? I mean, I'm out of notes. I could certainly talk about it more though. If you have some more stuff, Um, man, it's, it's I one just, of my favorite movies. Me too, man. And, there's just so many great lines. Like, I, I don't want to just spend the rest of the time just quoting lines from the movie or well, scenes. throw but, a couple out. I want to hear. Well, one of my favorite moments, not necessarily, necessarily a line, is where Kit shoots the football. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great. And it's so funny because right before that, you hear the voiceover Holly saying, we would sometimes ram a cow with the car to save bullets. Uh-huh. And then the next scene, Kit decides to shoot a football <laughs> because it was excess baggage. <laughs> Yeah, again, like, that childlike thing. Uh, he probably wanted to know what 
would happen if he shot a football, like if it would explode or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a, that reminds me just to put a bow on some of the, uh, you know, analysis of, of Kit as a character. Um, Malik talked about how, um, which I think is a really fascinating aspect of it. This idea that, um, suffering makes you deeper profound like people who've suffered especially in movies Mm -hmm. usually like you see it on their face they have this maturity this wisdom from their suffering but malik said in relation to kit like yeah that sometimes happens but sometimes suffering can just make you like uh closed off and narrow-minded and i think that could very much be applied to kit that he sort of uh he thinks he has a great depth of knowledge and wisdom but he doesn't at all and he's very just sort of simple and and a dumb shit (laughs) yeah he's simple and a dumb shit but that is the classic sort of uh story of the of the narcissist um i mean surely there are intelligent narcissists but man i've known people like this that that think they have so much to say um this rootsy wisdom and they don't know what the fuck is going on. They don't have a plan. Kit never has a plan. Uh, and it's interesting drawing that line to politics these days. Yeah. There's some uh, lines that can definitely be drawn. Yeah. Well, Man, and also, too, movie. with the folksy wisdom and how Malik makes it very uh, regional and sort of the way Kit talks. Uh-huh. Like, he has kind of that, that southern accent, that sort of te- Texas southern accent. Yeah. And the way he says things like, you know, takes all kinds, don't it? Yeah. You know, just he, he speaks in um, a lot of those those folksy aphorisms yeah. that um, you hear in that part of the country, you know? I know. And I think, um, and I, listen, man, I don't want to like disparage anyone, but I have known people from parts of the country that use those aphorisms in in place of having something of their own to say. And they just regurgitate a saying like like it takes all kinds because there's no critical thought going on. And, and you know, to be fair, there's certainly a, a, an amount of that that's just like you say it as just like kind of something to say, like it isn't meant to be, you know, it's just sort of like a polite thing to say or, or I don't know, you know, like. Uh-huh. It's not always it's not always said by people like Kit who think they're super deep. Sometimes it's just right, said totally, yeah, sort of nonchalantly. But when yeah, somebody we all do who, that stuff, oh yeah, sure. But when somebody thinks that these sort of aphorisms have a lot of truth and they think that they're the one who's like uh, blessing the world with this knowledge, uh-huh. that's where you can kind of run into <laughs> trouble, you know? Yeah, man, I really, really love this movie, and I'm glad I got to watch it again. Um, we should do Days of Heaven too. I mean, I you know I would do any and every Malik movie you would want to do, man. I I hesitate a little bit because I know Casey would want to do some. I was too, about to say Casey would be so mad. <laughs> he's also a big disciple of Malik, but um, but yeah, man, any any time, just uh, you know, you know how to reach me. I wonder maybe if you and Casey and I could all do Days of Heaven. That'd be fun. Like you in your closet, him in his closet in the other room. <laughs> Yeah. Me and my basement. For those listening, Casey and I are roommates, yeah, which yeah. is what he means. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Days of Heaven is just, I mean, I rank it as my favorite Terrence Malick film. Um, and, you know, I had the great Brooke Adams on this show as a guest you early did. on. Yeah, I did not know that. Yeah, she was on, and, you know, she's married to Tony Shalhoub. 
and I got a line into Tony and I was like, would Brooke want to be on too? Cause I'm going to be in New York. She could, you guys could both come in together and just do it back to back. And he's like, sure, she'll come in. So oh, what, I got she, to, what movie was she about? Uh, waiting for Guffman. Ooh. Um, which was, uh, which was good, but I got to ask her some questions about days of heaven, which I had always wanted to ask about that yeah. shoot, uh, and kind of hear it from, you know, one of the horse's mouths, uh, which was great. And another movie with, there were, there are a lot of similarities here in those movies with the narration and, um, not just the aesthetic look, cause that's all of Malik, but they're the relationship couple on the run. Um, there's some kind of, uh, same DNA going on. And that uh, that that theme Malik does a lot of sort of paradise gained and paradise lost. Yeah, you know, like in, in Badlands, it's maybe when they're out in the woods living this sort of Adam and Eve style life uh-huh. in nature, and same with Days of Heaven, where they they retreat to you know the uh, the Texas Panhandle. Yeah, to live in this sort of idyllic setting, and then of course that never lasts. Yeah. Reality always intrudes. You know. But, yeah. Um, and the way also he plays gotta, the violence, too, in both of those movies is very similar. Yeah, yeah, very true. Um, I was just going to say, also got to give a shout out to uh, Linda Mance from Days of Heaven, who just passed away. Oh, did she? Uh, oh, you didn't know that? Yeah, within just within the past couple months, she passed away. Oh, man, I, I don't know how I missed that. Yeah, just, just a bummer, because she's, um, I forget how old she was, but she wasn't that old. Oh, God, she's so great. That that I voice know. and that accent and that narration. Yeah. And she didn't really do much else. No, I think she was in maybe a couple of other projects, but really didn't become an actor full time, you know? Man, so sad. Uh, All right, dude. Well, that was great. I think we should try and do uh, get all three of us in there because I love that movie so much. And and I know you guys are both big, big Malik dudes. So let's uh, let's do that. Totally down. Awesome. Well, thanks, buddy. Thanks for having me, man. It's always fun. All right, everyone. Go out and see Badlands or watch Badlands if you haven't yet. 93 minutes long. And uh, one of the all-time all-time great movies. Very tight. A very tight 93 <laughs> minutes. You That's don't right. see that from Malik very often, so uh, enjoy it. Enjoy. All right. Thanks, everyone. Movie Crash is produced and written by Charles Bryant and Noel Brown. Edited and engineered by Seth Nicholas Johnson and scored by Noel Brown here in our home studio at Ponce Market, Atlanta, Georgia for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. 
Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 